1957, Melba Beals was one of the nine African-American students chosen to integrate Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're going to hear her story of that time, but also a story of spirit, a story of faith. Her book is called, I Will Not Fear, My Story of a Lifetime of Building Faith Under Fire. People ask me over and over again, hey, how did you get through Central High School? I say, God. And they say, excuse me, no, I don't mean that. How did you do? Did you take medicine? Did somebody escort me? What was going on? And I say, the Lord Jesus uh, escorted me, and he was my medicine. And so for you to understand that, to perpetuate it, uh, is my blessing. So thank you for the opportunity. Melba Patilio Beals on Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show. And be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, Progressive Spirit. Dot net. I'm John Shuck. And it just hurts so bad. You know, it hurts when somebody call you a name one day and throw stuff at you. Now, what if you do that five days in a row? You go home, you try to go to church, you try to get your sanity for two, then it's back to the, you know, it's like going home from the war. Hey, mom, I'm in Vietnam. I'm fighting Monday through Friday. I get to rest Saturday and Sunday. I'll be back on Monday, you know. Melba Patilio Beals is the recipient of this country's highest honor, the Congressional Gold Medal, for her role as a 15-year-old in the integration of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. She's a retired university professor with a doctorate in international multicultural education. She is a former KQED television broadcaster, NBC television news reporter, ABC radio talk show host, and a writer for various magazines. And she was one of the Little Rock Nine. She talks to me about her story from a faith perspective. I will not fear my story of a lifetime of building faith under fire. Welcome, Dr. Beals, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. It's my blessing to be here. You are certainly uh, now a, an icon of, of history. Uh, the story of the Little Rock Nine and uh, the integration that happened. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on and how you happen to be uh, chosen for to be one of the nine students to integrate that school? Well, as you know, three years before, in 1954, Brown versus the board, they had decreed, the Supreme Court decreed, that separate is not equal. Well, all the schools of the South, beyond a certain point, were very separate. And, of course, those of Little Rock, Arkansas, more so than any. And so they had they figured out that they had to do something to avoid penalties and so they decided to integrate their schools within the most reluctant way. First off, they sent teams of people around the city to tell uh, African-American people, look, you, you know, may have an opportunity to do this, but don't do it. You're going to be really unhappy. We're going to take away, away all your gifts that you get at Christmas, all the help that we get you, as many jobs as we can. You will not be living as well as you are now. So that stopped some parents, but the sifting portion of this was that they went to the high schools and they said, tell us the names of the young people who make good grades, who behave themselves, et cetera, et cetera, who will make good students and who will not fight back and do what they're told to do. And I happen to have been on that list. And also I was quite aggressive and had been all of my life about wanting to get out of Little Rock. I mean, and if I, and I saw this, going to Central High School, ranked in the top 10 uh, educational plants in the country, I saw going there as a way of getting out of Arkansas. And so, so surely I get a scholarship to one of the big eight, like a majority of their students were. 
So in a sense, you were chosen uh, from the white establishment. By the white establishment, yes. Yeah, that's what I meant, by the white establishment. Uh, you had Central High School with all of the money and uh, equipment and everything, and then your school kind of got the hand-me-downs. Is that right? Every uh, September, we would get uh, three-legged tables and smeary books and typewriters with not all the keys. We'd get all that stuff, see? And so uh, it was quite disconcerting because after a while, you knew you were getting somebody else's garbage, not like the news, you know. And so uh, that was frustrating to me. But to me, also, it was frustrating to drive around the block and note that their school was uh, eight stories high and eight blocks in diameter. It looked like an incredible castle, European castle, with a moat in front. Huh. Mine was a Florida flat school. Uh, one-tenth the size that you had to go outside to get from room to room. You had an awareness as a 15-year-old, really, of the inequality uh, going on. How, what was your awareness of the movements towards civil rights at that time? Well, I, and I've i written another book simultaneously called March Forward Girl. And the reason I needed to do that was to explain to you the basis for my faith. When I was three years of age, I watched my parents become new human beings in public. They were people who had confidence in private, but in public they they kowtowed, they bowed to the white people. That upset me no end. The fact that my parents became different people in the presence of white people really, really, really upset me. So I knew at three, four, five, look, I'm in the wrong place. I went out. When I was about four, I said to my folks, look here, where did I come from? Where did I come from? And they said, the stork delivered you, my dear. <laughs> I said, well, I'm going out. I sat in my wagon for hour after hour. I thought, let him come back this way and I will flag him down and get out of here. <laughs> so you were ready to get out of Little Rock or, or the South itself? Anything that treated me like I was not good enough. So it, at that time, I didn't realize it meant the entire South. But surely, goodness and mercy, I was ready to get out of Little Rock because there I was treated like I was doggy do. You know, don't ride the bus in the front. Don't drink out of the water fountain. Don't, um, don't, don't, don't sit. Don't go to the library. Don't want to borrow books from the public library. Don't go swimming in the public pool. I mean, come on. Yeah. And uh, I, I, the white establishment, I don't think they really knew who they were choosing when they chose you. Well, um, no, they just knew that I had an excellent record. The white school officials who chose the nine eventually knew that they had good records academically, that they behaved in school, didn't talk back, that kind of thing, and, and were not belligerent. And certainly I met that criteria because my mother was a school teacher who spoke six languages and had perfect memory. So in my household, there were no bees. And, and certainly C's meant you were in the house for the month. So um, I had a good record behavior-wise. And I went to church two or three times a week. And so I was a good girl. And so this is what they were looking for, is somebody who would obey and, and follow their rules. You know, don't drink out of their water fountains inside the school. Bring your own water, boo-boo. And um, those kinds of rules they wanted you to follow. So it is through that system that they eventually chose the African-Americans who went to Central High School. Now, at one point, a teacher came into the room when I was probably in 13 years age or so. And she said, who among you lives in this area? And I raised my hand. Who wants to go to Central High School? I raised my hand. She said, OK, so here's a piece of paper. Take this home and have your parents sign it. And I thought, no need to disturb those people. I mean, you know, they're probably busy. I don't want to put them, at, you know, agonize them with this question. So I signed it and turned it back in. And sure enough, two years later, in 1957, we were in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it came across the evening news, I believe, with Walter Cronkite. That's what I believe. But then I loved Walter Cronkite. Anyway, someone on the news, evening news said, that uh, Little Rock Central High Schools were going to be integrated and that the people who were going to go, at that point it was 16. First it was 112, 
116, then it was 16, and then it became nine. People backed out. They got afraid. They didn't want to risk their jobs. They were threatened, and so they backed up. You could threaten my grandmother and mother all day long. You threaten them, you really steam them, and they go do exactly what you don't want. <laughs> exactly. I want to talk about uh, your grandmother in a little bit. I, uh, I admired your story, but I, I have to say I fell in love with your grandmother. As you told yes, the story of her. Yes, at one point, one of the publishers wanted me to write a book with her sayings in it. She was a very androgynous woman, a woman who was committed. She was a, a maid in White Lady's Kitchens. When I saw the movie The Help, I thought that was a joke because she had much rougher time than that. But she was determined. She was solidly based in her religion. Um, she never, ever... You know, by the time I was baby, just speaking, I knew the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer. That's how we started out. And there was no staying at home. There was just going to church when she said go. And to praise God when she said praise on your knees in the morning and read that chapter of the Bible within the week and keep moving. And so in my household, there were no questions about, uh, you know, God, whether there is, whether there isn't or what. There's just. There is a God, and you will obey, and you will follow the rules. And so it would be that strong basis on which I would build my foundation. The first day of um, the nine of you going to the school was incredibly traumatic. You didn't expect the angry, hostile reaction that you received, did you? I don't think any African American, not the NAACP, not anybody expected that, that white people were so crude that they were among this group. Now, not all of them, not all white people in the world behave that way. I am alive today because of those who were not crude. After all, you know, we were 16,000 among how many? We're 100,000 of whites. So think about it. We got some help from the other side. But basically, on that particular day, the school was surrounded by a mob. And we were supposed to meet at a specific station. But we got separated because when we got there, there was like a large crowd along this two block, you know, span. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, is Johnny Mathis here? Is Pat Boone here? Who is here? Because look at this big crowd. It, it sounded like a football game or a rodeo. As we approached from the rear, we could see that this crowd was probably six, seven, eight people deep. And we walked up behind them, not knowing that what they were doing was standing on tippy toe. They were looking across the street. And the question is, at what? And they were looking at Elizabeth Eckford, tiny five feet Elizabeth Eckford, walking up and down the other side in front of the school, trying to get the, the, the soldiers who were there to break rank so she could get through and walk up to the front door. And those soldiers were put there by Governor Fabus, who supposedly was supposed to be the liberal guy, right? The moderate of Southern oh, governors. Oh, yeah, he was our personal best liberal. <laughs> so start there and see where you get. That's right. So she couldn't get through, so she kept walking. And behind her, this incredible picture from all the magazines, Life, Look, whatever, of these people shouting on her and spitting at her. He was, bless her heart, survived that only because of a Jewish couple who walked up behind her and escorted her to the wooden seat that was there to wait for the bus. And then you went through the crowd and met up with her? Absolutely not. At this point, at which they're shouting across the street at Elizabeth, my mother and I realized, wait a minute, we're in deep, we're in as much trouble as she is. Our first thoughts were, let's go across the street and try to help Elizabeth. But if she was in that much trouble and they were shouting nigger at her and threatening to hang her, what would they do to us? And sure enough, this one guy looked around, you know, they were in their coveralls and it was warm and whatever. And this one guy looked around and said, hey, we don't have to go across the street. We got us a nigger right here. And so there, there began our running for our lives and trying to hit it, trying to get ourselves out of there. And that, you know, was the beginning of a horrendous run because the there was no sidewalk. It wasn't paved. We got to this point where there was a branch across. And I need to say here that I realized I was in great danger. And my grandmother had said all my life that God is as close as your skin. You have but to call on him. And he will be there. And as a 15-year-old, I had never tried that out before because I had never needed to try that out. And I, and I think that I doubted it. You know, I, I didn't necessarily believe her. 
Uh, I thought Grandma was wonderful, but after all, the closer your skin, I didn't ever feel him. How do I know, you know? And so sure enough, I thought, oh, boy, this would be the time, wouldn't it? So I started screaming aloud, screaming, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. It makes me to lie down in green pastures. And then after that, I was repeating the Lord's prayer as loud as I could. And I thought, how is he ever going to get us out of this? The police won't help us. There's nobody here that will help us. Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. There was this bush lying across the road. And whereas my mother and I, we ended it, meaning we went around each end of it. The men who were right behind us were so viciously intent upon catching us that they fell over it. And when one man went down, it was like the domino effect. Boom, boom. They all did. Carrying their ropes and falling on their faces in the dirt. Meanwhile, we were running as fast as we could. It was the first time in my life my mother ever slapped me. She said, you got the keys. I taught you to drive. You go. She had been teaching me how to drive in the Kroger grocery store parking lot. So um, I got to the car first before her, got into the car. She got there. I opened the door, you know, in the passenger side. And we backed down. I drove backwards faster than I had ever driven forward. And as I was moving backwards, these men were beating on my windshield and calling us names and bang, bang, you know. So that was a little unsettling. And I thought, oopsie, this word integration is a much larger word than I had anticipated. Yeah. And when you say running for your life, that isn't metaphorical. You literally were because had they caught you, had this mob caught any of you, they would have killed you. No question. And the guys behind us were particularly vicious. We don't even know if they were from Little Rock. Because a lot of guys who like to play, uh, you know, hard games had come down there. And they had all these coveralls with their red faces, their cigars or cigarettes sticking out of their mouths and their ropes around their shoulders, getting ready to hang now. Not only that, my mother was very beautiful, petite. If she walked into a room, you did not know if she was Italian, African-American or what. We're a pretty lady with hair to her waist, caramel-like complexion, etc. They were saying what they were going to do to her sexually before uh, they hanged her. And they were being very specific. Uh, about us saying very nasty things and I didn't understand all of what they were saying but I mean I knew for certain that we were in a lot of trouble if you're just joining us on progressive spirit my guest is Melba Beal she's the author of I will not fear my story of a lifetime of building faith under fire you do eventually you didn't go to school that day I, I think it was what a few when when did you end up going uh actually going well to we had to go back to court and uh, at court, uh, we had to get an order. Actually, NWCP got an order which made the governor stand down and pull his troops. And after that, we were ready to go. But then, you know, the governor had a choice. He could have left the troops up there and said to them, make a way for these children, protect them. Or he could have done what he did, which was just remove them. And by just removing them that way, he made us more vulnerable than we were to begin with. Because now we were exposed to this mob and there was nothing standing between them and us. So the next day we reported there was a Monday, 23rd, and uh, what happened on that day was that we were taken into the side of Central High escorted by the Little Rock Police based on this court order. Now, probably well, um, we got in there and we were greeted by this sort of uh, ordinary-looking woman with brown bangs and hair to her shoulders, that kind of lady. And she was apparently one of the vice principals. And we were walking down this hall, which, remember, I told you it's two blocks long. And so we were sauntering down this hallway, which was dark. Because once you got in out of the sun, it was dark. You know, kids were throwing things at us and saying ugly things and blah, blah, blah. So we get to the principal's office. You know, uh, there is the guy, the principal, with whom we named, nicknamed during the year, Smiling Jess Matthews. Because mm -hmm. he smiled, you know, if you reported to him that somebody, I remember once I reported to him that uh, I think it was Terry was on the floor and he was being kicked. And they had his book bag and he wasn't crying, but he was whining and he was, he went up, you know. And 
smiling, just was smiling. And he said, well, there was nothing he could do unless it was witnessed by a teacher. I said, you mean you're not going to rescue him? No, I, I don't see anything. So he would turn out to be a real pain in the side. But we greeted him and uh, they read us a schedule where we were going six, you know, nine different ways. And I said, well, you know, why can't some of us go together? And they said, you wanted integration? You got integration. The mob is coming. It's it's eleven thirty, right? Uh, uh, that day, maybe it's that same day. Um, and it is that very same day? Yeah, and this mob is coming, and then there is a. It stuck out to me. Uh, a, a voice said, "Well, we may have to let the mob have one of these kids, so we can distract them long enough to get the others out." I mean, it's as, as if they're a wild pack of dogs, and you are all a piece of meat. Well, precisely. And you know, I've always been nosy. I was one of the best news reporters at NBC having received a lot of awards, because I am nosy. If I come to your house, I'm going to see your bathroom and sort of make an assessment. And so while the others, some of them crying, some of them not, we were placed in a side room adjacent to the office. And while the others were sort of, you know, bemoaning our situation, I had my ear up to the door, honey, because I don't know what was going on. And this guy whom I believe, couldn't see, but believed to be because he was tall, assistant of the little, to the Little Rock police, said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hang him. I'm a father. How will we choose? Have him draw a straw? I'm not doing that. Not doing it at all. We're going to get him out of here. We're going to take him downstairs through the basement. We'll get him out. And so the, it was a winding, winding trip down those stairs because I'm telling you, this is a huge, huge place. And I thought, well, this is it. These white men leading us and surrounding us, they're going to take us down here and hang us because it was just too dark and too, you know, winding and everything, but not true at all. The Lord police took us down. They had uh, shotguns mounted on the dashboards of two cars. Uh, these gentlemen said, get in the car and when the moment we start, keep your head down until I tell you you can pick it up, you know. Five of us in one car, four in another. And uh, as we were emerging, we had to drive up, 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 up. And then we come to this huge door that has these crackling chains on it. And the moment we emerge in the daylight, there are more members of this mob and they're pounding on the windshield. And we could just see their hands, you know, and their faces. And so that was that day. That was a specific ending to that day. It said to me, do you really want to do this? And yeah. so by this time, the city, the entire city of Little Rock was in trouble. People were shooting people on the streets. I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. Um, the whole city was, in fact, in an uproar. And this is when you had President Eisenhower. That Wednesday, he sent down the troops. Tuesday, he sent the troops. Uh, the 101st Airborne. And I remember seeing him come into town over TV and it was at dusk and the and the lights of their jeeps in the dusk i could see and i thought lord have mercy you know thank you god because i don't want to die i don't want anybody to die on my behalf and so the next day we went to central high school with helicopters overhead uh jeeps and armed men your grandma said they were angels in combat boots no question that's exactly who they were. Sent by God directly, she said. They turned to be just that. Angels in combat boots who, although they dated at night, sometimes those ladies, they took good care of us. And there's no question about that. They gave personal best. Some of them were taunted. Names were called. But they stuck by what they were meant to do. At a primary, secondary, and tertiary guard, they couldn't go potty with us. That's the only place they couldn't go. Or they couldn't go in the girls' dressing room. And so that's when we got into real trouble with those places where they couldn't go. Yeah, you mentioned in your book uh, that uh, some of your classmates uh, lit pieces of paper on fire and threw them at you. Yeah, when I was in the stall of the toilet, they did. And, you know, my, my first book, Warriors Don't Cry, which I think sold more than a million seven copies is a detailed analysis of what happened to me every day there because it was beyond belief. And even uh, Simon and Schuster who printed that book said, wait a minute, 
we can't even print all the things that happened to you because it will make the reader quite unhappy. So they subtracted about 30%, but still it, it tells you in there that, you know, I was punctured in the back with the end of a flag. Uh, probably the worst thing they did was to paint peanut butter in a chair and then put flakes of glass in it. I hope nobody listening, no child would ever do that to anybody because it takes weeks uh, to get that out of your bottom. Weeks with my, my grandmother, with her magnifying glass and her tweezers. And that, I was not happy. I was not happy with that. No, you know, you write in there that uh, you received training uh, from the NAACP on on uh, how, how to manage this. Uh, I want to ask you about how that training was. But also you mentioned that on the other side, the White Mothers Citizens Council, an arm of the Klan, set up training schools to teach Central High students how to torture you. Right. For example, on a rainy day. Or other days, the backs of my ankles are tight because they would walk on your Achilles. And so um, I'd get to class and I'd want to just scream because my Achilles tendon hurt so bad. And like, oh, if you were walking upstairs, they'd throw dynamite. Uh, just fun things like that, you know, to keep you entertained. Eggs all over your brand new dress early in the morning. Water guns filled with things you don't recognize. Uh, acid into your eyes. I got acid into my eyes, and the only thing that saved my sight was that my my bodyguard took the back of my eye. I always had ponytails or long hair. He wrapped his fist in it, and then he dragged me beneath the water fountain. And and, and yeah, wow. And so that's why I see today. Otherwise, I I also see them with little little round circles. You know, that's a lot to ask for a fifteen year old or a high school, or anybody, for that matter, to go through something like that. And uh, you met with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, and he gave you some advice about that as well, about uh, how, the, how the task that you were involved in was, was larger than you. Can you talk about your encounter with Dr. King? Well, as you can imagine, a few weeks of that treatment, I want to go home. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to go home. He said, hey, wait a minute. What's up, Doc? I don't want to do this. So at one point in the afternoon, usually we go to school, then we meet with the press, then we have to go home do homework, then we have dinner, then start all over again the next day. This particular day, we were taken as a group to the uh, to the uh, rumpus room of our local NAACP leader, and Dr. King entered. It was the most momentous occasion because obviously, as a human being, you could see right off the bat he's someone different, with a very still inside and a very peaceful demeanor. A sweet, sweet face, no wrinkles, no frowns. Uh, and the interesting thing was that um, I started to complain. Yeah, yeah, boo, boo, yeah, yeah, boo, boo, woo, 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 woo. And he said, Melba, don't be selfish. You're not doing this for yourself. You're doing it for generations yet unborn, darling. You know, don't, 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 don't think that you are going through this for yourself. This is a God-sponsored task. One you need to complete, and you are doing your people and all people a favor. And did you take that to heart then? A 15-year-old takes a while to boil that, you know. I was thinking I'm going to miss the prom. You've ruined several of my dresses. You call me ugly names every day. Uh, who am I and, and, and who am I really and how can I get beyond this? And it just hurts so bad. You know, it hurts when somebody call you a name one day and throw stuff at you. Now, what if you do that five days in a row? You go home, you try to go to church, you try to get your sanity for two, then it's back to the, you know, it's like going home from the war. Hey, mom, I'm in Vietnam, I'm fighting Monday through Friday. I get to rest Saturday and Sunday. I'll be back on Monday, you know. Speaking with Melba Patilio Beals. She was one of the Little Rock Nine, and she tells her story, I Will Not Fear, my story of a lifetime of building faith under fire. More to come. This is Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. 
Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. In 1957, Melba Beals was one of the nine African-American students chosen to integrate Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. She tells her story on Progressive Spirit. Her book is I Will Not Fear, My Story of a Lifetime of Building Faith Under Fire. You know, and one of the things that uh, you wrote in the book is that one of the ways to help yourself, and this is certainly a psychological advice for anybody or spiritual advice, you would repeat the 23rd Psalm and tell yourself five positive things about yourself. Oh, absolutely. You yeah, I had negative. to do that. Had to do that. You know, and the other thing my grandmother had told me since I was little is God loves you. Whenever you don't know what else is true or what else to say, God is loving you at that moment. He loves you so much that he has a picture of you on his refrigerator. And she put a picture of me and my little brother on the refrigerator and she said, just as I look at these and think how wonderful you are, how beautiful you are, how handsome you are, God does the same thing. And I used to say to her, Mama, there's so many people on the earth. How can he have one of her babies? She said, well, God can do miracles. You know, he doesn't need someone else to tell him. He can do it. And so that was what I kept in mind. I had to tell myself, these things are not true. You didn't finish school there at Little Rock. You, you needed to leave because your life was threatened, right? Well, um, we were, you know, remember Governor Favis at the end of the 57-58 school year, he closed the schools. And so black people were angry at us as well as white people. And I was out of school for a year. And uh, at this point, nearing to the end of that nine month period, school period, you know, like about April, May in there, uh, we have relatives, as does almost every black family, that are passing for white. The This one guy would visit us like twice, two or three times a year. And his mother lived down there. We used to go to his mother's house. And anyway, he called us and said, the Ku Klux Klan has $10,000 where they're dead and 5000 alive on Melba's head. Hmm. And I thought, well, I, I'd sort of heard that and seen the flyers, but I thought, well, you know, he said, this is not a game. You know, this is not a rehearsal. They're going to get her. And they're asking for, for crews among the Klan because now, see, he was a sheriff in the day and a Klansman at night. So um, he said, they're asking for volunteers among our men here to go down. After this kind of experience, you wouldn't be, and anybody wouldn't be blamed at all for really hating white people. Grandmother used to say the following, hating someone is like holding a lemon in your mouth. You're the one with the sour taste and the misery and the grind going down your throat. The person you're hating may or may not know you hate them. They may get joy from your hating him. Uh, it's, it's not an interactive kind of thing. And if you could get any joy at all from that, then it means you're sick. So where does hatred take you? It takes you nowhere. And so she would always say, if they knew better, they would do better. And so I grew up not hating white people. Then when I was going to come to California, you know, the people who adopted me, uh, they loved me and I loved them. They truly became my family, blood or not. I still have holidays with them. Uh, the little babies know me only by my middle name, Joy, because Daddy didn't want me to get, he didn't want me to be in the press all the time. And you, this is in uh, Santa Rosa, California, uh, the McCabe Santa family. Rosa, and that's where you finished your high Dr. school. Dr. Mrs. George McCabe, George McCabe helped to found Sonoma State University. And if you go up to the campus, you will see there's a gazebo there with his name on it. Daddy was a busy man and mommy was a marcher. She marched for uh, civil rights, for freedom of speech, for preschool. And she helped to organize a team that put together the public television station up there. She was a big, big Quaker organizer who helped to build a church up there and you know, she was a busy girl.
did you have any idea then that you were part of really a, a an historic moment? Oh, of course not, really. As a 15-year-old, what do you think about? I thought about my records, my Kremlin slips. You know, slowly but surely that year, I started thinking about life and death. And certainly what that, that stole from me was my childhood. It stole away my teenage years. It stole my peace and my joy and my ability to practice dancing and, you know, it just stole too much. You wrote, somehow a threat to your life makes you much more aware of a need for Jesus. And I'm thinking again of Martin Luther King, uh, the, the sermon that he gives and he talks about the early on uh, after uh, in Montgomery where he was threatened by bombs and he had his late night uh, revelation over a cup of coffee. Uh, and, and when you wrote what you wrote and what he wrote, it sounded like a very similar thing. He had to find that that inner voice, um, that real strength uh, that carried him through. Well, you see, that's when you begin to know on earth that you are alone. Nobody's going with you. Police aren't going to rescue you. Who's going to get you? Nobody's going to pick you up and carry you away and say, oh, my sweetheart, let me make you safe. Not happening. So now what are you going to do? I turned to the Lord Jesus because certainly my mother had introduced me to him and had demanded or commanded, you know, in his presence. Melba Beals is my guest. She's the author of I Will Not Fear, My Story of a Lifetime of Building Faith Under Fire. Uh, she is one of the Little Rock Nine. You moved on to... Uh, finish college, get a degree in uh, in journalism, and you became a journalist uh, in part because you said uh, uh, it was the reporters at the at Little Rock. Can you talk about that? Well, it was the reporters in Little Rock because, first of all, that I love to watch them march in and out of the court, and it was sort of like they commanded their own space. That's the first thing. Second thing was it was their observation of us that first taught me that what I had to say was important. It was the first time in my life. Anybody put a microphone in my life and I could turn on the news later and see it or pick up a paper later and see it. Uh, the New York Post started buying regular stories from me because they said, you can write, lady, you can write. It happened. And I thought that they were there, sent, again, angels and angels with cameras because <laughs> it is so difficult to hang somebody if the cameras are rolling. And in this case, the cameras are always, always rural. You have been a pioneer in helping others. You, you, uh, your first television stop was the uh, uh, PBS station there, KQED in San Francisco, right? And and then to NBC and uh, at two levels, a woman and an African American. You constantly had to ask yourself. All right, do I fight this battle? I've got people um, who I'm fighting for. It's bigger than me, but at the same time, uh, the energy to deal with this or 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 whatnot. Uh, that was difficult, wasn't it? Always to kind of strategize about how you were going to deal with various uh, aspects of uh, of racism and sexism. Well, I think that it's difficult. Uh, African Americans are more subject to stress, heart attack, high blood pressure, because you're doing that twenty four seven. Anytime I enter a room, anytime I apply for a new job, anytime I, no matter where I am, I'm doing that. I'm strategizing. I'm thinking about, am I going to be accepted? Uh, how am I going to get along? Is there danger? I mean, if you are going to stay alive as an African-American, certainly in the South, you better keep aware of what's going on. And you better know, I have an antenna that will tell me right off the bat which white people are sincere and which are not. Yeah. And that racism in the North is more subtle and in many ways just as devastating as in the South, perhaps more. Uh, and you recognize that as a, uh, as a reporter in the television station of um, this subtle type of racism and the microaggressions and all that. And it hasn't changed, has it? Not a lot. We are in some ways rolling backwards, say some people, but the problem is this. I don't know an African-American breathing that's going back anywhere. Right. None of us is going to accept treatment the way we were treated originally. It's not happening. Don't hold your breath. And so what does it mean? It means a huge clash. So get ready for a clash. It's just not acceptable that you're going to talk to me publicly the way I used to talk. If we are being rolled backwards by current circumstance, then what's going to be the result of that, you know? 
people have to decide whether they're going to be on the side of human beings or the side of something else. As you say, we're not going backward. It's up to people of conscience to be courageous. And, and I'm thinking of, of the way you did um, at one point when, uh, what was it, one of the TV persons uh, insulted you, uh, some kind of racial, and, and, and it was that moment that you decided that you needed to, to speak up, and you did. Uh, do you remember what you said to the, the TV uh, person who gave you, tried to put you down with the racial epithet? Well, let's see. Not exactly, but um, I usually try to remain cool. That happens quite often. I don't. Remind me. I don't remember exactly. Oh, um, it was it was when he, he called you Aunt Jemima. And, oh dear! And you well, that had... happens to be one of my really bad points because um, you know Aunt Jemima is a symbol, and it's what it means to assume all black women are your maids or your helpers mm-hmm. or you know or Aunt Jemima. And so uh, he said Aunt Jemima, uh, you know, calling me that. And uh, I just, I, I used, I was, I was bad. I referred to his parental tree and uh, I had to get bad. Uh, I, I tried to, re- try to remain uh, a civilized Christian woman. But occasionally, if you go too far, you, you do that for two or three years, something comes over me. The devil makes me do it. <laughs> so I have to answer you back, you know, and so him... I had to answer him back and tell him the whereabouts of his mother, you know. Well, that's what you got to do. I had to, to pray over it. It's not that I do it without knowing that the Lord Jesus is saying, Melba, you're across my lines now. And uh, But sometimes these people just push and push and push and push and push and push and push. You know, and this guy was had pushed me for a long, long time. This particular man had. And they come up to you and they make statements like, uh, well, you know, these niggas, give them an inch, they take a mile. They think that they're going to take over the country eventually. And that's when I have to say, you, you, you didn't notice that we already have. Come with me. You know, I mean, you, you, you have to have some rebuttal. Excuse me, because you get, you get so sad having somebody talk to you that way all the time. Jesus said uh, harsh things, too, that, were, that needed to be said to deal with the bullies in his time. Exactly. And Jesus was among the things you can describe him as. Wimp is not the word we would use. And so although I don't speak back all the time, because it's really a waste of energy, I have to tell you, if I answer every negative thing that happens to me during any single day, I don't want to exhaust my energy. My my grandmother used to say, you have this tub of energy granted you by God. Don't waste it. There's one point in your book where you say you had had previously looked at your relationship with God like one with a, a genie, you know, uh, someone to help. Then you moved into a, an, another level of, of faith. I know as a child and growing up 15, 16, in the South, particularly as a black person, you see God as your rescuer. And, and my grandmother said, you know, he's the one that's going to come after you. However, as you get deeper into the, your exploration of what is required of you and how to be the best possible Christian that you can, you realize that there's an exchange going on here. And the exchange is that God expects something of you. Always. It's not a one-way relationship. It's a two-way relationship. So you can't just sit down and say, okay, God is there. I'm going to cross my legs and have a good day. You know, No, you're not. There is what he wants of us. He wants us to put energy into the word Christian, but he wants us to give back and he wants us to talk to our fellow sinners about um, how to go to the road to heaven. And you have to be aware that there are expectations of you, your behavior, for example. Sometimes it's not what I say, but it's how I choose to behave and to live. Particularly in the case of raising children, you can't talk one way and behave another. And I've just discovered as I got older that um, this is not a one-sided uh, relationship. You, you have things that are on your shoulders. And my grandmother really tried to tell me that at an early age, and I didn't totally get it. you know. But as I got older, I could see where um, I think the best example I use is once I wanted 
I desperately needed someone to help me move. And I was a single parent alone and whatnot. I didn't have any money. And um, one of my girlfriends sent her son over. And her son, um, in the midst of lifting boxes and helping me, said to me that he had been exposed to drugs. And, you know, he said his mother was really uptight about it. And what did I think? Well, there I had an opportunity not to get angry with him or to castigate him, but to tell him that is not what you should be seeking. And so sometimes our opportunities to praise God come in other formats. Ministers come in many, 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 many shapes. You know, you are a minister. You are a kind of minister in the work that you do. Uh, sometimes, for example, I hear we have a car agency and there's an African-American man that will come and pick you up when your car's been repaired. Well, he starts out the ride with a verse and he will say, how are you feeling today? And I'll say, fine. He said, I'm feeling the Lord Jesus right here, right next to me in this seat. And he will go from there. And when you get finished with that, you will know so much more. You'll have an elevated feeling because he's so invested in his religion. And so sometimes uh, how we praise God is not to stand and say it, but to show it, demonstrate it. And that's what I've learned as I've delved deeper into what this relationship means. Yeah. And there's an openness uh, throughout your writing to to be open to when the divine might reveal that there are situations that okay, this is the situation that I'm put in now, rather than fret or worry or about it, which which we do, but there's also a sense in which we can recognize a bigger picture, a, a bigger yeah. plan. You know, the most miserable days, Grandma taught me to say, hey, God loves me. That's all you can say that day. I mean, I can have some miserable days. Lost the car keys. Can't find the car. One time I got off a plane. <laughs> where is the car? Never mind the keys, where's the car? And so, yeah, I, you know, I was 52, 51 when I adopted a, an identical set of twin boys. I'd never raised boys oh, before. Yeah. And how I was led to do this is a long story, but it was a God's thing. And the whole thing of getting adjusted as a 50-year-old single parent to identical twin boys who are at three, I tell you, come to Jesus. It's the only way I made it was on my knees. Because I couldn't figure out in the beginning um, they had had, you know, three, four families in their years. And so they were not ready to be parented. They'd look at me straight in the face and say, hey, you're not my mama. Okay, so what was going to be my next move, you know? And so I learned a lot. These children have taught me a lot about what God expects of me and how I must demonstrate it in every way. And it's not easy. It's, it's difficult. My girl used to say... If you can follow the first commandment for more than five minutes, let me know, because you, you made a big accomplishment. And then early in my uh, career as a, as a journalist, uh, Cron TV signed me to follow Mother Teresa one day, because she came to San Francisco. Now, therein was a real lesson, because we ran into this incredible house uh, in Pacific Heights that had just been willed to her. And it was the most beautiful thing ever. One of the most beautiful things about it were the rugs on the floor, the furniture, everything you look around, just precious. And when I got to the house, Mother, they said Mother Teresa's upstairs, she's pulling up carpeting. And she was pulling up this carpeting and rolling it up, putting it in a truck, giving it out taking it down to like a dump truck thing, right? And I'm like, whoa, what's going on? And she said to me and everybody that's in the group that asked, that she wasn't keeping the carpeting because it took too much time to maintain it. And the time that you took to maintain the carpeting was time you should be doing God's work. I thought, already then, I'm not sure I'm gonna make that level, you know. Um, I have to ascend here a bit. So when I when I when I observe Mother Teresa and I read, for example, how she holds to her chest the people in India who have leprosy and the things that she does, I realize it will be a while before I, I reach that level, but that should not thwart me from attempting it. Maya Angelou used to say to people, or she would tell the story, people come up to her and say, well, I'm a Christian. And she'd say, already? Exactly. Exactly. Um, what would you say now, um, as you 
might look at another 15-year-old here in 2018 uh, in San Francisco, Portland, wherever it might be. Uh, what, what would uh, what advice, what uh, challenge would you offer? That if you want to be equal, you have to see equal. Being equal is seeing equal. And I'm actually writing another book of that title because, look, we can ill afford to mistreat any human being, like what they look like, walk like, speak like, talk like, or cook like. Uh, these are God's children, all bringing us a message, all here to help each other. So be careful how you behave towards another human being. Don't judge not. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to know that love is the answer. There is no fighting. There is no injuring anybody. That is never, ever, ever, ever the solution. And, of course, my mom and my dad, my white mom and dad, were the ultimate proof to me. That, to me, was God saying, hey, Melba, surprise. Look what I got for you now. I was so shocked when I learned that of all the places I had gone to be rescued and taken care of and protected was a white family. And to boot, my dad had reddish blonde hair, blue eyes. He looked like he, looked like he had just stepped out of the mob. Old gentleman. With a deep voice, he looked like, you know, momentarily he was going to pick up his rope. And to live with those people and be in their home and have them treat me as they did was the most incredible thing ever because it was the biggest lesson for me. And it taught me that all people are really alike and, and don't make judgment about people and realize that whatever you think is awful today will be fodder for conversation tomorrow. Or maybe you'll write a book. Dr. Melba Beals, author of I Will Not Fear, my story of a lifetime of building faith under fire. Thanks again. It's my pleasure, my blessing. Thank you. Because anytime I see somebody doing the Lord's work like you're doing, then that enhances my spirit. You're not like most people telling me, oh my God, must you talk about God that much? Must you write about God that much? And the answer is yes. People ask me over and over again, hey, how did you get through Central High School? And I say, God. And they say, excuse me, no, I don't mean that. How did you do? Did you take medicine? Did somebody escort me? What was going on? And I say, the Lord Jesus uh, escorted me, and he was my medicine. And so for you to understand that, to perpetuate it, uh, is my blessing. So thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. The website is progressivespirit.net. Now in its seventh year, producing shows specifically formatted for radio, distributed through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you'll hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Download podcasts and subscribe at ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. Be well.